This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr. And joining me today on the podcast is Peninsula Pulse's Chief Technology Officer, Nate Bell. Nate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Miles. Is that the primary responsibility in your life as our Chief Technology Officer? Well, I recently found out I'm also the Chief Technology Officer of Door County Wedding Magazine as well. I did not realize <laughs> that till I picked it up on the stand. And uh, that, that I, I have to thank Dave Elliott for that, that position that I've held for, I think, almost 14 years now. <laughs> Your main role in that position is just listening to Dave come up with ideas and complain, right? Um, Yes, and then telling him no. (laughs) I wish I could do that to him more often. But really, you work with Door County Broadband, working on internet issues in the county for 20 years, 15? July of 2003 is when myself and Paul Neville put the first wireless broadband system up in Sturgeon Bay. So a long time, a lot of experience with the internet, but we're not talking about that today. You are also a Gibraltar graduate like myself, a couple years younger than myself, and have, you know, over time uh, evolved into being part of the Sister Bay Village Board, becoming an advocate for cycling, and a lot of ups and downs and, and twists and turns in your life and your path to where you are now. So I thought it would be just one of the great benefits of having this podcast and having this paper is talking to my friends and sharing their stories. So um, once in a while, it's nice to just bring in my friends and talk on the podcast and bore people. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think that some of our conversations are probably better left off the podcast that we've had over the years, Miles. But, <laughs> a lot uh, of them. Yes, many of them. But I, I'd also add on to there that actually what got me into government initially was Sister Bay Plan Commission. I've been on that for almost oh, 13 years. 13 years? Yeah. God, we're old. Yeah, um, we are. Uh, the only one who's been on there longer than me continuously is Marge Gritzmacher. Because Marge has been there since the beginning of planned commissions on the planet. <laughs> I think it was actually 1995 because I've, I've gotten to become good, pretty good friends with Marge and I've stopped over there and chatted with her quite a bit to pick up all the all the background knowledge she's got. And I really appreciate her her input and her insight from, from history because there's a lot of things we don't want to repeat. Yeah. And Marge is amazing. She is, uh, for those who recognize her name, she is the mother of Steve Gretzmacher. Sorry about that, Marge. But... Uh, <laughs> We she all is, have our cross to bear. She is uh, an amazing woman. She has been serving on the commission forever and still puts in the time, still puts in the research. And it's a great voice. I mean, like you said, having that perspective on those boards is so vital. I know some people can get complacent on those boards and maybe tired on those boards, but Marge still brings it. She does. And she's got a, a good memory of what happened in the past. And yeah. she'll reference back to that. I've, I've got a pretty good memory of what happened in the past. And I surprised Denise and, and Marge on, on occasion when I, when I bring things, certain things up <laughs> to say, Oh yeah, I guess that really did happen that way. Well, if you surprise Denise, that's always a good mark. Yeah. But I want to start maybe talking about cycling. So bike lanes are kind of a passion of mine. Although sadly I do not bike as much as I would like to. I help put on a couple of events. I do ride my bike. I love to ride my fat bike. I have not been road biking as much as I would like since having a child. And that's my excuse. And it's a lame one, but I'm using it. But you have turned cycling into a huge passion of yours over the last 18 months. Yeah. So way back when I I was in, this is probably 2006, 2007, I had been into running quite a bit. And then number of things happened, life changed. I, I stopped being so much into fitness. Then COVID hit and a number of changes happened for me. 
and I was looking to get back into that. And I realized early on that my 39-year-old knees were not what my 26-year-old knees were <laughs> in the ability to to go out there running and that. And I, I had tried to, to do that a bit, and I still will go out there running once in a while, but I know that it's not something I could do on a regular basis without having some negative physical impact on me. So I started biking, and I have to credit Paul Neville with putting me in touch with his uh, old road bike, which was way more of a bike than I ever needed at that point, but that really got me going on there. And I do track all of my uh, my biking and, and map map my ride. I think my current total for outdoor biking is somewhere around like eleven thousand miles. Um, I'm about eight thousand miles this year, which a couple of years ago that would be mind blowing to me that that's yeah. the case. I actually haven't gone out yet today. I did go out yesterday morning, but I'm hoping after dinner tonight to go out around 8 o'clock because it looks like the wind's going to be below 20 miles an hour, which might be a little nicer. Like, how often do you bike to work? You live in Sister Bay. Yes. You work in Bailey's Harbor. How often do you bike to work? In the summer, it's probably, I don't know, 9 out of 10 days. Hmm. People assume that there is rain happening all the time, and there certainly is rain many days, but it's not usually raining all day. And I'll look at the forecast, and if it's not going to be raining at least one way, I'll still go. And even if it rains somewhat, it's it's not that big a deal. I consider myself so fortunate to commute down County Q, one of the most beautiful roads in Door County to to cycle on. And that's my commute to work. That's an amazing blessing to have. I'm so appreciative to it, and I think about that. And I'm sure people out there look at me and say, who's this crazy guy that's biking down Q in, in November? And I look at them and I say, well, who are those poor souls trapped in that car? I mean, they're not out there enjoying the... You don't always refer to it as a car. You have other monikers for them. I do. And I also <laughs> want to say that I also I also do have a car and I do drive it. I do refer to them as four-wheel death machines on occasion. <laughs> For you, that's probably about a 13, 12, 13 mile one way. Yeah, it's 13 miles if I go down Q. And then it, usually what happens on the way home is if I've got time and there's and the weather's reasonably decent, I'll usually end up going down Water's End. So it ends up being 17 miles on the way home. Okay. You're able to do it in the winter sometimes, right? Yeah, I've got a gravel bike that I set up that has got some, some winter tires on it. They've got some studs on there that I'm able to go through on the ice. The only time it gets really troublesome is when it's slushy. Because I can sure. actually go on glare ice just fine. I actually the slush I, can pull you in directions, and well, the slush keeps the studs from touching the pavement or the ice. Like ice is actually a reasonably good surface to get grip on, but slush floating you out there just makes you, you know, have some issues. I actually went down, and I've got a got a pretty good lump on on the, my my left hip actually this week that is uh, turning interesting <laughs> colors at this point. It's hurting a little less, but that only slowed me down. It did not stop me. Well, let's go back a little bit. I mean, you talked about how you got into running back in the. 2005, 2006 range. And let's just be blunt, like you were not in good shape. No, I absolutely was not in good shape. Nothing close to it. And so at that time, you kind of transformed your lifestyle and body at that point, Mm -hmm. uh, changed the way you ate and lost a lot of weight and got into really great shape running. What exactly were you doing at that time? I mean, I remember you buying like oatmeal by the 50 pound bag or something like that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Way back when. I mean, at that point, I mean, so another very radical change, I suppose it would seem from the outside is I had been a vegetarian for 21 years and I was still a vegetarian at that point. And I just became extremely conscious of health and probably almost too much because if you make it that much of a focus and then if you lose that focus, you fall off of it rather quickly. So right now I don't look at it as a focus. It's part of what I do. It's just one of many facets of, of who I am as I try and take care of that. But I mean, 20, 20 some odd years of being a vegetarian to, to, to become quite carnivorous is a, is a little <laughs> bit of a change too, but I think that's been a positive change for me as well. And so you, you were in bad shape, you got into really good shape, really healthy. 
and then you fell out of that again, and then you've come back and gotten really healthy again. Is that a fair synopsis? That's a fair synopsis, and it's also something that's in the forefront of my mind. I mean, like, okay, I don't want to have this happen again because I don't want to go through that process again of falling off and not being, you know, taking care of myself as I should. Yeah. What happened in your journey that, you know, when you were able to work so hard to get in good shape, what happened that you fell out of that? Well, I mean, one of the things that can happen to a lot of people is you'll get into a relationship and that'll kind of distract you from it and you'll stop paying attention to it as much. I think that was part of it. And I had some other personal issues that were not uh, not pleasant to deal with. I mean, I got into a little bit of trouble there and that kind of took me off course. And then now you, through cycling, like what, you know, it's not all about weight. It's about mindset. It's about mental health. It's about eating right and things like that. But what was your weight at before you started hitting the bike all the time and what you're at now? I mean, I was a high school athlete. I've known you for a long time. You're in better shape right now than I am. <laughs> and it makes me feel like I need to get off my ass, to put it frankly. Well, I mean, I, I guess I know that at one point, probably back in 2013, I was probably about 330 pounds when I went to the, wow. the doctor. I may have been more than that, but I think right now I'm, I'm going between about 215 and 220, and I'm still probably, I'm still heavier than I should be. My ideal weight is between like 175 and 185. Hmm. I mean, that's a remarkable, remarkable transformation. And a, a lot of, I'm guessing, eating right and just cycling is the main physical activity you're using? Yeah, I'm cycling is. I mean, you do some weightlifting. I, I don't do as much weightlifting in the summer because I'm too busy cycling. I'd rather sure. go outside and, and do that. But I, I guess for me is people do notice the weight loss, but that's not what I think about it as. It's really just something that happened. It's, it's a manif physical manifestation of other changes inside hmm. because I think my outlook on life is completely different. It's far more positive. I'm far more optimistic. I would think I'm probably more pleasant to interact with in general, but <laughs> it is certainly something that people can look at and see. But I think if people take the time to talk to me, they'll realize that there's a lot of other changes. I think if you talk to people on the village board, I know that uh, Chad Kadonko has told me many times, he's like, I wasn't sure that I wanted to run for another, another term, but hearing you talk and hearing you get passionate about these things, I think it's motivated him to stick with it longer. I certainly hope it has. Hmm. So you're, you're seeing that those interactions with the people around you change as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it like I say, it's a, it's a physical manifestation of other changes that are going on there. I mean, it's fundamentally in life. One of the hardest choices to make is to be happy. And that sounds really simple and it is really simple, but it's also extremely hard to do. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot of other things that it touches. I mean, you probably would wonder, what is cycling having to do with planning and zoning? And Everything. It does. <laughs> it really does. It makes you see the world through a different lens. All these things are interconnected. It's, it's hard to see. In my head, they're certainly interconnected. They, they don't seem that way, but you know, they're all part of the same journey. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. You became a cyclist. And then once you started biking to work all the time, our conversations changed. You mm -hmm. started talking about the safety of cyclists and what we have and, and what we don't have in this area in terms of infrastructure for cyclists. Like what, what kind of things did you discover? How did your outlook both as, you know, cause you're serving on the village board as you're, you're undergoing this change and, and taking on this new, I don't even want to call it recreational, this new transportation device really is how you used it. Mm -hmm. But like, how did it change your viewpoint on the village board? You realize how much of not just American society, but I think in general, I'd say North American society, because Canada absolutely falls into the same issues of car dominated society. And I don't think that cars are going to go away or should go away. But I think that it, there is not acknowledgement of other forms of transportation. I mean, I went down to the door hotel today and 
I remember walking out there and somebody said, oh, where's your car? I'm like, well, why would I take my car? It's, it's eight-tenths of a mile. I can walk that. And yeah, it's a little windy today, but walking is a perfectly good form of transportation as well. Mm-hmm. And people just presume, oh, I'll get in my car and I'll go. And like I say, I have a car. I drive it. I use it. It's a necessary thing for living up in Northern Door County, but it's not the only tool for transportation. Mm-hmm. So what kind of things did you realize now? Like when you talk about that and, and that realizing that it's not the only tool for transportation, talking about cars. So, you know, as a guy who is now cycling all the time, what do you think we need to change? We need to, as we install roads and update roads, we need to make sure we're putting infrastructure in there for, for cycling. And I, I believe that one of the big changes you'll see in the next 20 years is I think the e-bike is going to make a big difference because mm. it makes it far more accessible for people who aren't necessarily physically able you know, to, to bike 20 miles. Well, if you've got an, an electronic assist bike, you can use that same infrastructure and have much less of an impact because it, the physics of it, if you think about all of the weight you're moving around in your car, that's not you. Yeah. That's kind of extra weight. Well, you compare that to an e-bike, you're moving a lot less weight. So that is going to use less energy. It's hmm. going to be more efficient. That's an interesting way to look at it. I just look at it as that should help people because now they don't have to think about going up the Sister Bay Hill on their own power or the Ephraim Hill. You know, I have a lot of older friends that have taken up e-bikes and who never were cyclists, but love getting places on e-bike. So even if they're not getting exercise, even if they were using all the electric power, they would at least be doing it on a bike instead of a car mm-hmm. and taking up less space on the roadway and decreasing congestion. But they're also getting some exercise out of it and getting in better shape. Jim Lundstrom, our former editor, he lives up in Duluth now. He rides his e-bike constantly. The thing with e-bikes, unfortunately, is there is somewhat of a division between people and, and cyclists and e-bikes. And I think that's unfortunate because they are a critical portion of the transportation issue. Mm-hmm. The other thing about transportation when it comes to bikes versus cars is, and pedestrian traffic, I mean, because walking is a legitimate form of transportation that is commonly disregarded, is the amount of space taken up by parking. Yes. The parking demands, they take up a huge chunk of developed areas. I mean, when you look at the village, there's a lot of parking lots. I mean, I look at the parking lot that has got to stay a parking lot across from the old Helms property because of the encumbrances that the state of Wisconsin had from when the DOT, they gave the money to the village to purchase that lot. That's got to stay a parking lot. That's a Waterview parking lot. Yeah. It's a horrible use of Waterview property. Yeah. It's not the highest, best use of the land. I mean, there's nothing we're going to do to change that at this point, but that could be something else. And going back as as a person who was on the committee, the Waterfront Planning Committee back in 2007, the goal at that time, nobody talked about making that a parking lot. Mm -hmm. It was all about either selling it for development or keeping it as parkland because it's so valuable as I mean, you could have a three-story hotel there paying a ton of taxes to supplement other things, to supplement other recreation, or you could have nothing there and just have the recreation right there. But instead, it's for cars. Yeah, and there's so much space that's dedicated to cars. I mean, I know you you frequently go down there and look at all the open parking spaces and all that, mm-hmm. which that's another related but somewhat separate issue. If you look at the space that is taken up by a bike to park versus a car, it's, it's substantially less. And I was very pleased at the Peach Barn that just went through plan commission, I think... That might have been November or December. They were able to get some allowances for alternate transportation because they put in a bike rack. Hmm. And that that was something I've come to realize is that it's not just how you vote in government. It's the words you say. And it's not even necessarily convincing other people on that that body. But the folks from the Peach Barn heard what I said. Hey, have you thought about putting a, a bike rack there? And it wasn't a requirement, but I said, I, I think you should really think about doing that. They did. They said they had a very positive response from cyclists coming there and using that. And then looking through the code, Denise Berto pointed out that there is an allowance for reducing parking requirements 
if you have alternate transportation there. So hmm. I, I believe it was something around eight spots they didn't have to have to have the same seating capacity. Wow. And if you can encourage the people to do that and cycle to your spot, I think it's not just the, the parking spaces, it's it's encouraging them and making it an active part of what you do. We actually don't have that many bike racks up here in Sister Bay. Like I, I'll ride into town and I'm tying my bike up to somebody's fence, which you don't always like to do, and tying them to their patio. There aren't a lot of places to just tie up to a bike rack. There aren't, but I would point out that at the new medical center, there will be a bike rack. Nice. Thank you to, to, to Brian Stevens on that, hearing my <laughs> suggestion. Well, and you talk about like the importance of just suggesting. A lot of times in government, we stick to what are the code? What are the regulations we have to enforce? What are, and I talk to my dad about this all the time. He's on the board of the town of Egg Harbor. And I'll say something like, you should have them put shrubs in front of that building. It's like, well, we don't have any ordinance. It's like, you can suggest that they put shrubs in front of that. You, should, you can suggest design elements. And no, you can't mandate that they do them. You can't judge it based on, I give it a yes or no based on that. But a lot of people forget that like business owners just don't think of it and they might like your idea. And so you might say, how about a bike rack? And they might go, oh, that's actually a good idea. It doesn't mean that you're voting based on that or that it's it's a regulation or a mandate. It just means maybe you're putting that, like all these storage units that are going up. Mm -hmm. There are certain places in the county where they have regulations that you have to put screening around them. And some places you don't have that regulation, Town of Egg Harbor being one of them. But I don't think anybody wants to stare at a steel shed storage building when they come into Door County. When you're looking at... Why would I want to live there? Whether you're a local or a visitor, we're talking tourists or just kids driving back and forth anywhere. Like nobody wants to stare at that. So let's suggest that they put some trees in front of it. Put cherry trees, put whatever you want. Just like, don't make me stare at your steel pole building. You know who I really picked that up from is being on plan commission for, for many years. And then she was briefly off of it is Denise Berto. She has always offered suggestions. I think sometimes people take her suggestions as decrees, but they're not. And she doesn't make them that way. But that's something that I've observed from her and definitely learned that you need to ask for stuff. Yeah. Oh, Ed McMahon from the Urban Land Institute came up here 15 years ago and did a great presentation where he said, there are certain things you can mandate, which are great. Like in Cape Cod, they mandate if a McDonald's comes in, that it has to look like a Cape Cod building. It can't just be like their cookie cutter McDonald's that they're going to put everywhere else. Can't just be shoehorned into Cape Cod. It's something that probably people should codify up here because if we continue to get busier in the shoulder seasons, we might have a, a bigger influx of that. But he also said, like, you got to ask. You've got to force people to, if they want to be in your community, if they want to invest in your community, make them be a part of your community from a zoning perspective and not make their thing now define your community. So he had a really great presentation about that. It really opened a lot of eyes. We probably need to do that like on a yearly basis up here because plan commissions change and people don't know the power that they, they always have. I've actually referenced his presentations on plan commission before. So I was familiar with them and I think that was probably 04. I yeah, think when it, was. it was a long time ago now. Yeah. But it was really great. It opened my eyes. We often fall into this trap of thinking we got to invent everything here. We have to figure out the solution entirely ourselves instead of looking and going, oh, other towns have actually done pretty cool stuff. It's something with housing too that like there are solutions out there that, that our other communities have used that we we can probably learn from, but that's a whole other podcast and many hours of work. But, you know, you, you moved to Door County in high school, right? Or middle school? I was in high school. That was in May of 1996. So you graduate from Gibraltar and, you know, we're at that age now where we're seeing us transition from like, we're just young kids. What power do we have? What are we doing? We're just trying to live our lives to now you're graduating into realizing, oh, like I have to participate in my community. I got, I have to figure out the solutions. I have to be the one who thinks 10, 15 years down the road and 
is part of shaping this community. What is that for you? What is that transition has meant joining the plan commission and then running for village board? What has that transition been like? I mean, like for context too, like earlier before this conversation, we're recording this on a Thursday, December 16th. I just came from a, a meeting where Governor Tony Evers was awarding a grant to the Northern Door Children's Center and the Door Community Child Development Center. And some of that money will go to Paula Anschutz, who is somebody who was in high school when I was coaching, a great basketball player in high school, and is now like just forging her way forward on a housing project in Sister Bay. And by continuing to plow through it, she's now getting, today she's shaking hand with the governor, getting a grant. Whereas, you know, six months ago, she was just somebody who was looking at buildings down at Little Sister Resort and saying, hmm, this'd be cool if someone saved this stuff. And now she's like leading this major housing initiative. So it's really cool to see, that's a long way of saying like, it's cool to see people in our age group, our generation, step up to the plate. And what has that transition been like for you? And what motivated you to do it? I guess I was probably just joined plan commission because it was suggested to me by Bob Cuffrin. And I, actually I was talking to Bob Cuffrin trying to get wireless equipment on the water tower. And he said, hey, you live in the village. Have you thought about being on plan commission? I said, what the heck is plan commission? I had no idea what it was. He's like, oh, well, it's it's the second most powerful body in, in the village. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll think about this and I'll go. And I sat in on a couple of things and I joined there. I wouldn't- Did he admit that he was the first most powerful body? <laughs> I think that was implied in the conversation, <laughs> but I, I've been on plan. I was on plan commission quite a while before I really got passionate about, you know, making the community a better place. And I would actually have to credit, and uh, I'm, I'm not being prompted to say this. Miles has no idea. And certainly Dave has no idea. I'm about to credit him. Dave Elliott has made me appreciate the importance of community mm. and how much time he has spent and what an example he has been. He never really says that and he never really takes credit for it. And that's, that's an amazing thing. And he's been very inspiring to me. And he's made me realize that if we want this world to be the place we want it to be, we have to do something for it. And we've got a lot of challenges and changes ahead. And if we're not participating in it, those changes, it's not going to be the world we want it to be. And it still might not be the world we want it to be, but gosh, I at least want to try to do right. my part. You know, you mentioned Bob Cuffer and said, well, you live in the village. You should consider this. A lot of times we overlook that too. A lot of times when we need someone to fill positions, we we just are like, well, these are open. How come no one is, is applying? And the power of just like that personal invite is huge. I know it was for me when people first said, hey, you should be on this waterfront planning committee. At that time, I was like, man, people want my opinion. And it's flattering when people ask you, but it also is empowering. So there's a great deal. Like a, we spend a lot of time sitting in boards like nobody shows up. It's like, well, sometimes you got to go and say who should be here and how do I invite them into the room? How do I make them be a part of this conversation? That's very true. I, I look back to, and I think that it probably is about 50-50, Dave Lito and I, that we were able to convince Chad Kadonka to run for Village Board years ago. <laughs> so it, that that invitation does make a difference. The conversation with Bob, I, I mean, Bob is not the most charismatic man out there. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Nice guy. But yeah, no, I, so I don't think that held as much uh, sway with me as me just thinking, well, you know, I wonder what this is. I should probably do something. I should probably give back to the community on some level. Mm. But at this point for me, I want the world to be a better place. I want to make the world a better place. There's a lot of challenges ahead. I am so incredibly concerned about attainable housing. I couldn't move to Sister Bay today. There's no way yeah. I could afford housing there. And I, I know that I'm not the only one in that position. I think that a number of people that are our age would have an extremely hard time, even the shift that's happened in the last two years. I bought four and a half years ago and my wife was able to keep her job from Chicago. She works from home, which means she gets better income because she gets paid from working in a city, but we wouldn't be able to afford our house today. If we were making that same move today, we wouldn't 
be able to buy our house just based on the value it's at. And I think you were telling a story, if you don't mind sharing that story about the property near your home. Yeah, there's a property near my home that was assessed for $242,000. It recently sold after, I think, six days on the market for $495,000. <laughs> and that that's, that's not, I mean, sure, that means that our houses are worth more money, but that's not good for us if we're looking beyond. If we want to live here, that's a, a detriment to us. Yeah. Because we're going to end up having nobody live and work in the community and you you need the stakeholders in there and that that's a term i've really really glommed onto a stakeholder because it's important to have people invested in the community because if you have people that are are coming here and they're not sticking around they don't care it's inevitable they're not going to care as much there's a big difference between say take egg harbor the town i grew up in when i was a kid the, the school bus stopped seven or eight times on the mile between my house on County T and Highway 42. And then as you drove through the village of Egg Harbor, it stopped every block because there was a business owner whose family, the, the business owner lived in the business, lived downtown on Main Street, and they lived upstairs to the building or they lived downstairs and they had a couple kids in the house. So the school bus was stopping to pick them up. And you went through town and you picked up half your bus load in the village. Then you picked up another half in, in the village or in downtown Fish Creek. Nowadays, there might be a couple kids total in each of those two villages because the property downtown has become so valuable that people aren't using it for a single family home and having the business downstairs and their housing upstairs and they live outside of the village. So a lot of people who own the businesses in these communities don't live in the community that they own the business, so they're not as vested. Or you have properties that have become condominiums or Airbnb units or or those modified hotels that are, they're really hotels, but they're absentee owner hotels. Mm -hmm. And this is not a knock on any of those. It's just the reality is part of the transition. But there's a difference between having somebody who lives in that village and an investor. Absolutely. You, you can invest your dollars, but it's different when you're investing your day-to-day -day lifestyle. And then you care about all the other things that are going on. The quality of the park, the, the sidewalks, the pedestrian wayfinding, the, all those other things that go into making a community. And that is a, an aspect that we've definitely lost over time. And that's, that's what I'm really concerned about losing as we're moving forward because we're not going to have people moving here to work jobs in the community. They're going to be either retiring here or working remotely, which working remotely is still far better than having an investor in there, in my opinion, because yeah. they're, they're still at least invested in the community. Right. Trying to think of what else we should talk about in terms of urban planning, how much down the rabbit hole we want to go. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess I would point out that what was two podcasts, three podcasts ago, I think I told you, I said, Miles, there's this guy, he is my favorite YouTube planning yeah. and zoning channel, Dave yeah. Amos. Yeah, you're the one who introduced me to Dave Amos on YouTube, and it came out of some of our cycling discussions, and you were like, this guy really gets it. This is really interesting. And he said, plus, he's actually from Sturgeon Bay. <laughs> and you connected me to him by email, and I ended up having a great conversation with him. And I've heard from multiple communities in Door County who have said, great podcast. We're going to rethink some of our plans based on some of the things he said, which is the best thing that happens in, in my job is when you can do some things and it's not like preaching and forcing it down someone's throat, but just exposing people to a different idea. And hopefully they, they absorb what they need and maybe it changes the direction of some decision. It's, so thank you for introducing me to Dave Amos. He has really changed some of the thinking I've had to around planning and zoning. He's been very eye-opening. What are some of the things that have changed for you? Because Sister Bay has been going through so much, such a deluge of development and development proposals, which has raised the ire of some people who have grown up and lived there as Sister Bay tries to hold on to its heart and soul, but also 
grow? I guess it's hard for me to point any issue that he's really changed. It's just the mindset that has gone on there. When you start realizing he's the, his channel is what has made me understand the car-centric society that we live in and how it is not just car-centric, but almost exclusively based around the car. Yeah. And that really, really deteriorates communities. It really separates communities. There's a term called strodes out there that's like street roads. It's not a positive thing. And if you look at it, it exists a lot around the United States and Canada. And some of the things where you, you just start looking at things differently. What do you mean by that? What are strodes? Well, they're like a highway, like a, there's not, I mean, I suppose 57, 4257 going through Sturgeon Bay as it's going south of town. So it's going, it's not, it's not a full highway, but okay. it's a street. And it's very isolating. There's no way you couldn't walk from Target to Destination Door County. No, there's no safe way to do that. No, oddly enough, the city of Sturgeon Bay did do a huge. Paul Andrews was a big proponent of this, of the need to connect pedestrian wayfinding because they built multifamily workforce housing out by beyond Target on the highway, and there's no connection. There's no sidewalk pedestrian connection between that housing and anything in the community. So if you were a kid on a bike and your family lived in some of that multifamily housing and you got on your bike, you'd have to drive onto 4257 four lane. You'd have to ride your bike down the four lane, probably against highway traffic because most kids aren't going to cross those four lanes and ride along with 55 mile an hour traffic. It's that's really poor planning. And the, the city had said, well, we'll connect this other side road at some point in the future. But it's like, if you are actually thinking family and your own family, what would you want in that? spot and you would want the pedestrian thing first and foremost almost before the car at least i would yeah and that that's where it ends up being exclusively cars i mean i again i keep saying i acknowledge the fact that we do need cars i'm not living in some fantasy world where we're going to get rid of all cars there's the distances and, and how things are laid out up here it's not going to happen but we should let people have alternatives that's a great example of there's no viable alternative i mean my goal would be to and it'll take a long time is to make cycling accessible to people that aren't you know middle-aged men that are, that are kind of crazy that are, that are out there. I mean, you want to see women and children out there yeah. feeling comfortable because I can tell you going down County Q, which is a designated bike road. I mean, the state of Wisconsin acknowledges it as a road that bikes are going down. It's on the, a couple different maps. That's can be a little bit scary at times because you're going yeah. down a road that's got no shoulder. You have to operate in the road. And by the way, you're supposed to operate in the middle of the lane on almost all roads in Door County because there's not cycling lanes and there's not an adequate shoulder, which upsets right. some motorists but it's your safety. My safety does, does trump your convenience. Your convenience does not trump my safety. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. A great illustration of the afterthought of pedestrians and cyclists is the fact that when a woman was killed on her bike on County A and Judville Road, like four summers ago, mm -hmm. she was on, and County A has no shoulders. That was the designated bike route that we promote, and I think it has since changed but that was the bike route promoted in our literature. And that was the official adopted county bike path that this person was using. And that was a road with no shoulder whatsoever. The safest way that they determined for cyclists to get around the county was to drive on a 55 mile an hour road in which any local knows that the average speed on that road is probably 70, 75 miles an hour with no shoulder. I think that's an example of one thing that I've, I've learned by, by being exposed to the, some of the, you know, Dave Amos, his channel and some other things with cycling is the, Speed limits are a terrible way to control speed on a road. Yeah. It's road design that controls speed because people are going to yeah. operate as fast as they feel comfortable doing. And simply putting in a bigger, wider road doesn't make it safer. It might actually increase speed and it, it may not have any impact on safety. Right. 
Yeah. And I said this on the podcast with Dave Amos. If people want to go back and listen to it, you can find it at doorcuttingpulse.com slash podcast. And just go back and find that. He has this great YouTube channel. Even better than listening to the podcast is going to his YouTube channel and just watching them. They're eight to 10 minutes. They're incredibly informative in that small period of time. Dave is an incredibly articulate narrator of these things. And he really breaks down these complex zoning issues in a really digestible way for people. And it goes everything from parking to bike lanes to street design, slowing traffic, suburban design and small town design, big city. And it's a lot of big city stuff that applies to small towns and just kind of like combating the conventional wisdom to make the community you want and the aesthetic that you want. So, and he's got a great one on street trees too, which I love. Yeah. His, his channel is called city beautiful. Yeah. But enough about urban planning, which we can probably do another podcast or 12 about that. But I want to talk a little bit about your pandemic experience, because that was really when you kind of transitioned and started cycling and changing your lifestyle. So kind of tell me what you went through during the pandemic, starting in March of 2020. In March of 2020, the day that Safer at Home came down is ultimately when I started the process of getting divorced, which was some extremely trying times. I realized early on that one, I didn't want to do this again. So I was going to learn everything I could from it. And I realized there was a lot of things in my life that weren't working for me that I needed to change. And ultimately it made me question a lot of things. It made me really think about who I was versus who I wanted to be. And when I realized that gulf was so big between who I wanted to be and who I was, I just knew that I didn't need to make a lot of changes. And obviously when you're going through the middle of that, that's a lot of traumatic things happening there. You may not be thinking completely clearly, but I was able to turn that into a positive thing for me. I was a lot more mindful of what I was doing, a lot more purposeful. I took a lot better care of myself. I started caring more about other people and my community. And I really got passionate about a number of things. I mean, one thing that I don't think we mentioned at all is it's, it's kind of a strange thing, I know, but I got into epoxy art and I've never been an artist in my life. But I started playing with epoxy and I mean, I, I think you've, yeah, you've, you've seen a couple pieces oh, yeah. of them. They're, they're different. For the listeners, he does these little Instagram kind of accelerated videos of the process and they're pretty cool to watch. I had never appreciated how much of a benefit art could have on mental health. And, you know, going through that process, I've also been a lot more vocal about a lot of things and a lot less ashamed to say that, you know, I've had some mental health struggles through the years. And when, when people are not willing to ad- admit that, it puts a stigma on it. And, you know, I, I think back to this last um, Little Eddie Big Cup. I had never gone to that. Ed Stragg was a, he was a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got some doozies of stories about me <laughs> and Little Eddie doing some stuff that I won't put on a podcast. <laughs> But I'd never gone to it because I think I was ashamed that I I had suffered some of the same things to a lesser degree than Ed did. And going through all this process with a pandemic made me realize that one, you're not going to change who you are, but you can change how you process things. That made me closer to the person that I want to be versus who I was. If I interrupt you for just a second, just for the listeners. So Eddie Streg, who Nate's referring to when he talks about little Eddie, and he was a childhood friend of both of ours. And, uh, we lost him to suicide in 2000, gosh, is that 2014? It was 2014. It was March, March 16th, 2014. And also not, I think there's a connection there because of, of seasonal depression and whatnot. That's also the same day that Safer Home came down. So that was, that was actually, mm. it. Ed was on the forefront of my mind that day. And I probably wasn't in a great place because that, Yeah, it's kind of a downer of a day. I mean, yeah. I mean, Eddie was an incredible person, like just a, the life of the party is how you would describe him, but also just an incredibly kind person. 
and had his own struggles. And the Little Eddie Big Cup now raises money each year to go toward to health causes of all kinds throughout the county. And it's it's an incredibly great event to remember him. But like you said, you, you felt like you couldn't. What, did you feel like it was a a fear to go to that event? Like was it a, the sadness or was it the the fear of recognizing some of your own issues? I think it was a hesitancy to admit some of my own issues on there. And it was, some of it was sadness and it was a combination of the two. It's it's hard to say exactly what it was, but I knew that this year, because there wasn't one in 2020, I knew that I wanted to go to it and I wanted to be a part of it. And what I got a tremendous amount of satisfaction is when I met Eddie, it was at Peninsula Golf Course. Hmm. He was the second person I met in Door County that was of my age. And I still remember that on the 14th hole, it was about... 50 yards back from the green on the left side, uh, there was a large tree it was under. I still remember that day in seeing Eddie for the first time. And that's where I met him. And that's where I spent a lot of time with it was a Peninsula Golf Course where this event is. And I'm not going to get Eddie in trouble anymore. <laughs> but he used to give us a lot of free hot dogs. Um, this is before I was a vegetarian. He gave us free hot dogs at lunch because I worked at Peninsula Golf Course on the maintenance crew. So he would give us free hot dogs. So this year during Little Eddie Big Cup, everybody that I knew or remotely knew, I, would, I bought them a brat. I think I spent about $200 on brats for people. And I said, you know, here, I want to give you this brat, but I want you to understand why. I said, this very place is where Ed, I spent a lot of time with Ed. And he always gave me free hot dogs. And this is, this is my way of remembering that and, and honoring him. I think a lot of people really, really enjoyed that. And I know it certainly made me feel good to, to yeah. share that story with everyone. Sure. And so you have kind of going back to your, the process you were going through in March of 2020 and the months that followed, you mentioned, you know, you had to change the, the gap between who you were and who you wanted to be. What was that gulf? Like, what was the things that was different? I was far more selfish and lazy than I ever wanted to admit. And those two things manifest themselves in very different ways. I had a tendency to be negative. And also to my detriment, I was very adverse to conflict, which can actually cause you a great deal of conflict if you're not willing to stand up for what you believe at the moment. Mm. You just defer it and it becomes a much bigger deal later. And that really caused me a lot of challenges. So it was a, it was a mindset there. And it was just, instead of trying to find a reason to, I think at this point, I'm actively making a choice to be happy every single day. One of the things that I do on Instagram that I don't actually have a lot of people following because I don't really share it with my friends is I take a lot of pictures of sunrises and sunsets. Hmm. I get up early in the morning and I'll go out on my bike and I'll go, go out to Sand Bay and I'll see the sunrise out there. And that's a reminder to me to, to go enjoy life every hmm. single day and to go down there and when possible, walk down to the marina and see the sunset because it's the beauty and the place that we live in. It's to appreciate life and to find a, a reason to be happy. And it doesn't always work. And sometimes you have bad days, but more often than not, it does work and it makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, we're in an incredibly fortunate place where you can do that. Watch the sunrise and watch the sunset both times over water a couple minutes from your house. What was your process then for changing that mindset? I mean, was therapy a part of this? Was yeah. it exercise? There was exercise was a big part of it. There was also therapy. I mean, I think that there's a, you know, I, I talked to a counselor regularly and in the COVID times that meant doing it remotely, Yeah, which I was hesitant to do. But at the same point, I, I would tell anybody that if you're thinking about going to counseling, remote counseling is just as effective as in person. Mm. I, I would not have thought that at that time, but that was probably for three or four months in the beginning of that. And mm -hmm. then finally, I think the, the, the counselor I said, is, eh, I don't think you're really getting much from this. And I'm like, okay, well then I can keep this process going and, and keep evolving as, on my own. Hmm. What's next? Well, for me, I mean, as, as, as you know, I mean, I mean, I guess in general in life, I would say I'm not done, done evolving, done changing. 
done keeping that gulf between who I am and who I want to be as little as possible because ultimately I'm never going to be exactly who I want to be because that's a moving target. And I've always got to improve, always got to be better. You know, have you seen the Kenny G documentary? I have not. This is an odd segue, but there's this great documentary came out a couple of weeks ago. I think it's called Listening to Kenny G. And I didn't know much about Kenny G other than like, I kind of hated his music, right? And it, it's great watching it because he is someone who's always trying to improve. And he's got this outlook of like choosing to be happy. It reminds me of some of the things you're saying here where he's like, I'm a happy guy. Yes, yeah, some people hate my music. A lot of people hate my music. A lot of people don't think I count as a real jazz artist. He goes, call me jazz, call me pop, call me whatever. I like what I do. It's successful for whatever reason people like it. I just try to be as good at what I do as I can. So he still practices like hours a day. He's, I think, into his 60s now. And he worked himself into becoming one of the, like basically a notch below a professional golfer. He became known as like the best celebrity golfer in the world. And he's also a pilot. And now he's talking about, I need to learn French. So if I figure if I practice at one hour a day every day and I do that, I'm going to learn French. He's like, I know I'm going to do it. But he's just like, his outlook is not to focus on you know, you could easily sit there as Kenny G and just be like, why do these people hate me? And just focus on that. And he's just like, they can. It's okay. They don't like my music. That's fine. And it's kind of that same thing of just like choosing. And I know it's not that easy for everybody, right? Like, I don't want to pinpoint it as like, oh, you're not in a good spot. So you're just choosing not to be. But if you can get to a spot where you can, you know, in little decisions throughout the day of like, I'm not going to, at least in this case, Kenny G. (laughs) Miles Danhausen's new hero, Kenny G. But I'm just not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on this. It's hard to do for a lot of people, but. Well, like I said, it's it's an incredibly simple, but incredibly hard thing to do. Hmm. You can't just decide one day to do it exactly. It takes a lot of, a lot of thought. I mean, I guess some people can, and, but I I wouldn't think most can just, oh, I'm going to do this now. It takes a lot of thinking, a lot of thought and and a lot of desire to do it. You know, one of the things I've really gotten into, and this is actually goes back to a conversation I had with one of my friends out in the Twin Cities. I'm talking to him about this and all that. And he's like, you ever, uh, you ever heard of like stoicism? Like, well, you mean like the people that just don't express emotions? Like, no, that's, that's not what that is. It's a lot more complicated than that. And that's something actually I've gotten into and started paying attention to. And, you know, Marcus Aurelius and the like. My favorite quote at the moment is, a man cannot cross a river twice because the man is not the same and the river is not the same. Hmm. So that's what I've been trying to expand my, my viewpoint on to try and get all these tools I need to interact with the world better. Because there are still times where I'm maybe not the greatest at interacting. I think that you've probably seen that on some meetings here and there, Miles. Um, And if you look at the most recent meeting, I think you'll see I made an improvement. But it's always a work in progress. Well, Nate, thanks for jumping on the podcast. Thanks for being so open and honest. Hopefully it maybe helps somebody else who's going through some of the same things in their lives. But, uh, you know, you and I could have several different podcasts about urban design and local politics and technology, but uh, I'm glad we touched on this. And you also became the first person to ever say Marcus Aurelius's name on the podcast. So congratulations. Wow. That's something. (laughs) So so you can live off that for a while. Thanks, Nate. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.